When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast, a show designed to help you communicate with power and become unstoppable on your path from hidden genius to influential leader. We know you have what it takes to reach your full potential, and that's why each and every week, Johnny and I share with you interviews and strategies to help you transform your life and unlock your X factor. Whether you're in sales, leadership, building client relationships, or even looking for love, we got what you need. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Judson Brewer. Dr. Brewer is an addiction psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for treating addictions. He's developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including both in-person and app-based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. He's also the author of the bestseller, The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked, and How We Can Break Bad Habits, and his latest book, Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows Us How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind came out early last year. In that book, he distilled more than 20 years of research and hands-on work with thousands of patients, including Olympic athletes and coaches, and even leaders in government and business. He presents a solution-oriented program that anyone can use to feel better, no matter how anxious they feel. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brewer. Thanks for having me. Now, Johnny and I have talked to a lot of authors of books around anxiety over the last decade, many of them titled Stop, Defeat, Beat, Anxiety. Unwinding anxiety is a, a new perspective that Johnny and I hadn't heard before. So we'd love to just start with you know, your definition of the book title. Yeah, it's well, it's a great place to start. So <laughs> as a psychiatrist, you know, I've had patients who have tried to stop, tried to beat, tried to do everything <laughs> to to essentially end their anxiety and have come to me after, you know, 15 years or 20 years and saying, I'm exhausted. I've tried everything. <laughs> so this title came out of my own anxiety around helping my patients, you know, about one in Five patients shows a significant reduction in symptoms with medication. So my prescribing is basically me playing the medication lottery. And also this serendipitously came together with some research that my lab had been doing around how to help change habits. And, and those two pieces came together that really changed the way that I view anxiety completely. Uh, and it it's it's really about unwinding it rather than, you know, it's like you have this string and you pull on it and suddenly that knot is, oops, you know, you cannot get that knot untied. It's not about pulling. It's about uh, learning to see how the knot is tied and how to help it unwind itself. Something there that I want to dig into really quickly before we move forward, which is what were your preconceived notions that you had before this discovery and changing these, I would imagine a lot of people hold those same beliefs about anxiety as well. Yes. So some were, and some of this was conditioned in, in medical school. So it, you know, it was like, well, the only thing that's going to help anxiety is, is giving them a medication. Uh, another one that I saw a lot in my patients, and I see this more generally as well, is people just feel like, well, that's the way I am. It's always going to be like that. And in particular, you know, people thinking that they are an anxious person where they're so identified with the anxiety that they feel like they can't even imagine anything other than that. Now, this link between habits and anxiety, I had not heard before. And we don't often think about anxiety of basically being something that we could be doing to ourselves continuously through our behaviors and actions. We often think about it as something external that's happening. Some trigger or something is causing this anxiety in our life. So how are habits and anxiety playing together or, or not playing well together for causing anxiety? Yeah. Yeah. They kind of feed off of each other. So any is any habit is formed through, you know, as three essential elements, like you mentioned, one of them already a trigger, 
so trigger behavior and results process or, or from a brain standpoint or reward. So this was set up, you know, this is evolutionarily conserved all the way to sea slugs, right? We all have the same process and it's set up to help us remember where food is. You know, you see food, that's the trigger, you eat the food, that's the behavior. And then the reward is that your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it's really this process, you know, it's called positive and negative reinforcement. It's helped us to eat and not be eaten, right? We can also learn, you know, through fear where danger is and to avoid it in the future. Anxiety, and this is, it's, every time I think about this, it still blows my mind. I've been, I've been thinking about this for a long time now, but it still is amazing because I never thought of anxiety as being a trigger for, ready for this, the mental behavior of worrying. So the feeling of worry, which is part of the definition of anxiety, can trigger the mental behavior of worrying, right? So it can be a noun and a verb. So the trigger of anxiety triggers the mental behavior of worrying. And a lot of my patients say, well, I don't see anything rewarding about worrying. But at some point in the past, because this is how all habits are formed, and there's a fair amount of research going back to the 1980s showing that this is true, is that anxiety was rewarding in some way. And it can be – I'm sorry, the worrying, uh, the mental behavior of worrying can be rewarding in some way. Most often, it's through one of a couple of things. One is it feels like we are solving problems. So occasionally, we might solve a problem. Although – and then we assume that it was the worrying that solved the problem, but that that's you know correlation without causation. Another is that <laughs> it it's less – by doing something, by worrying, it distracts us from the worst feeling, feeling of anxiety. So it's negatively reinforced in the sense that it distracts us from something that feels worse. So relatively speaking, it feels better. And the other way that I think about that is, you know, even if worrying about something doesn't actually keep, you know, keep that person safe or, or prevent that thing from happening, at least it feels better than doing nothing. <laughs> but <laughs> but there's, a, there's a fallacy in that that you could probably already see, which is, Worrying itself doesn't feel very good. And in fact, it can feed back and trigger more anxiety. Therein lies the problem. <laughs> I think that the, the mental behaviors and the worryings are, it's, it's, you see it and certainly smoking. I'm, I'm 48. So I grew up in a time when you could go into the bank and get in line and have a smoke while you're waiting. It was like, there was, there was a, uh, you know, a, an ashtray there. And, and, and it was always per, portrayed that it was a, a real a stress reliever that you're going to start worrying and then you have this cigarette and then you'll feel much better. And when in actuality that you, all you're getting is relief from your, your nicotine addiction cravings. It's, it has quite a, a different effect, but it was also personified and, and you would see it in movies as a stress reliever. I've, I remember as a kid asking my parents why they smoked. It was a stress reliever. And so you, you certainly see it there more than anything. And it changes the way you relate to that cigarette. It changes the way you relate to those chemicals. So where the chemicals are now the relief from not having the chemicals. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy how we – and in, with smoking, it's interesting because nicotine is created. It's very toxic actually. And so plants make nicotine so animals won't eat those plants. <laughs> you know? And as humans – I mean this is how crazy smoking is. As humans, we are willing to push past the nausea that comes when we first start smoking – and that nausea is our body telling us, hey, dude, you're ingesting a toxin. <laughs> but we are willing to do that for the, the better reward of feeling cool, rebelling, whatever, because most people start smoking at the age of 13. They don't start smoking as adults. They start smoking because there's something that's really – that they're willing to overcome, which is ingesting a toxin to have the bigger reward of you know being cool at school or – you know, imitating the Marlboro man or whatever. Well, I just, I was just at my parents for, for Thanksgiving and on television, there was a Frankie Avalon series going on that, that afternoon. And in one of the seasons, it was just blowing my mind of the world that was portrayed in the early sixties. And there was still so much innocence left on the, on, in these movies. 
And there was a pivotal scene where Frankie Avalon just gets gets off of a surfing expedition. He comes back and he and there was this whole dramatic scene of him pulling out the cigarette and and I was marveling at how this was set up. Now I don't know if the cigarette companies had paid for that the way that it worked out, but the way it was dramatized, then of course he starts singing while he's smoking and it was this thing. And then she lights a cigarette to to watch in in utter attraction and amazement. And I was utterly blown away. I mean so I mean the messaging certainly was all around all of us at all times back then. Oh yeah, for sure. And it, it and today it's it's really heartbreaking to see in modern day where so many television shows also portray smoking, whether it's like uh, Mad Men, you know, mm-hmm. where there the, everybody has a cigarette in their mouth at all times, you know, with that television show or even more modern movies, et cetera. There's, you know, there's, there's this whole thing where people are smoking and it's just part of what they do. Setting up the whole, you know, messaging for kids. You know, if you want to be Don Draper, you got to have a cigarette in your mouth and a drink in your hand. <laughs> you know, both of them. Oh, it's terrible. Some of your other work around eating and cravings and overeating is a very similar thing where many of us will overindulge to the point of sickness just to get that initial reward of the first slice of pizza or the first piece of candy. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Well, I mean, this is our brains. Our brains are kind of one-trick ponies where they know one thing, which is this positive and negative reinforcement, and they just basically you know, think of it as rinse and repeat. They just, okay, learn to smoke this way, learn to overeat this way, you know, learn to worry this way. You know, it's it's the same process, and it's just amazing how much it can, you know, and in general, habits are helpful. It's you know I'm not saying that having habits isn't a good thing. Just imagine if we had to relearn how to you know put on our clothes to walk to make food. We wouldn't even make it past breakfast because we'd be so exhausted you know every day. <laughs> so habits in general are really helpful. Yet this process can go awry in mo- especially in modern day where things are designed to be addictive. You know whether it's our the food-like items. And I say that because, you know, Doritos do not grow on trees. Uh, you know, they are specifically designed to be, and it's, it's amazing how like Cheetos are the exact same color as Doritos. That's not a coincidence, right? So the perfect color, the perfect mouthfeel, the perfect crunch, the fact that things will just dissolve in your mouth, all of that is designed to be addictive. Social media, same thing. From the the tweets to the likes to the even when you you pull on your you know your phone to refresh a newsfeed or whatever, where'd that come from? The casinos, right? And so it's all of this is very very well and carefully designed to get us addicted. Well, I think the the big issue with a lot of this, and I can see it in my own family, is. Culturally, the way we're raised, a lot of these habits we pick up from our family. So Johnny's talking about smoking. I picked up worrying from my family. My grandma was like the biggest worrier of all time. And then my dad was slightly less of a worrier, but still worry was that tool that he would grab whenever there was uncertainty. And I find myself falling into those similar patterns. So if we're now noticing this and we're seeing that we have these habits that are creating anxiety in our lives. And we're talking about food companies pushing us in a direction. We're talking about video games, social media, all of these outside inputs also pushing us in a direction. How do we start to take back our autonomy and override some of these biological processes to actually enjoy life? Yeah, it's a great question. So the first place I would start is by saying, be careful of what you think might work and then just keep trying to do. So I want to highlight how, you know, there's just been such a, an emphasis placed on willpower, whether, and this is hundreds of years. It's not with the, you know, the advent of advertising that suddenly willpower came to the fore. It's just that the companies, you know, whether it's the weight loss companies that say, you know, Hey, the formula is right. You just, you know, take in fewer calories than you put out, which is correct and something I learned in medical school. But it's not just about the formula. It's about knowing that and also knowing how our brains work. 
Do you, do you either of you remember Bob Newhart? Of course. Oh yeah. Remember the Newhart show? Yeah. So did you, there was a skit that is just hilarious called um, something like just, just stop it. Do you, so basically, so woman walks into a therapist's office, it's five minutes, but I won't go through the whole thing. Woman walks into a therapist's office, right. And says, you know, I have this fear and I won't say which one it is because it's worth watching the skit. And he basically says, just stop it, you know, just stop it. And that's the whole skit. And I say this because that was a skit from the 1970s that is just as relevant today as it was then. And it would have been relevant a hundred years ago. And hopefully it's not as relevant in a hundred years because we've learned a little more about how our brains work. So it wouldn't it be amazing if my patients walked into my office and they say, I want to quit smoking. And I would just say, just stop it. You know, it'd be one visit. I could charge them a bunch <laughs> of money because it would be one visit and they'd be done. Right. Just stop overeating. Just stop worrying. It's not how our brains work. So that's the first thing I want to highlight is that we've got to start by knowing how our brains work. If we know how our brains work, then we can work with our brains. Are you someone who has a lot of aspirations? Have you set epic goals for 2022? What is your plan to reach those goals? Do you have the support you need to finally reach them? If you're unwilling to make the changes that your dreams require, then you'll be stuck living in 2022 with the same results from last year. It's going to take the right mindset and strategies to make your dreams a reality. If you're like us, then you know it takes two things to reach your goals, community and accountability. Community to support, encourage, and hold you accountable to get you over the hurdles on your way to your goals. And that's exactly why we've created the X Factor Accelerator. It's a community of like-minded, high-value people who are ready to take their lives to the next level. An opportunity to strategize, learn, and grow with the Art of Charm team. We start each and every month with an intense goal-setting strategy session. Weekly implementation sessions with opportunities to practice rapport building, supercharge your charisma through powerful communication, and the charm to attract the right people into your life. Are you ready to win at Love, Work, and Life in 2022? Imagine what you can accomplish with coaching and mentorship with The Art of Charm. What are you waiting for? Join us today at unlockyourxfactor.com. That's unlockyourxfactor.com. And so this is where this piece around you know anxiety, even we've done work with eating, we've done work with smoking, all of this comes together is just understanding the process. So if we know that habits are formed through this three-step process, we also have to pay attention to how that, that how rewarding these behaviors are. And the reason for that is that the only way that our brains will change a habit is by seeing one of two things. Either that the habit is really rewarding or that it's not. I'll give you an example. So for example, I have – so our brain set up these reward hierarchies with different behaviors so that we can choose things very quickly. You know, It's like if I'm given a choice between broccoli and chocolate cake, guess what my brain's going to say? Dude, eat the cake, right? It goes back to the hunter-gatherer days where cake is more calorically dense and our receptors in our mouths and even in our stomachs say, hey, you know – cake over broccoli. So we have these preferences that are naturally aligned with survival. Those preferences get set down and then we just, we don't have to relearn them. We just, it's called, I think of it as set and forget. You set the habit that cake is better than broccoli and then you just, you see the cake, you eat the cake. So that's important because the only way to update that reward value is to do something actually very simple, which is to pay attention. <laughs> so th then this goes back, there's some researchers back in the 1970s that developed this formula called, uh, they were Rescorlet and Wagner, these two researchers. And they basically said, you can get two things if you pay attention. One is called a positive prediction error and one's called a negative prediction error. Positive prediction error, so let's use chocolate cake. If I walk into a baker, a new bakery, let's say one opens up in my neighborhood, and I walk into the bakery, I don't know how good their cake is. What do I have to do? I have to eat their cake. So I eat their cake and I'm like, oh my God, this is my favorite, you know, and I start babbling because it's so good and post on social media how everybody should go to this bakery. That's what I, I just got a positive prediction error because it is better than expected, right? And my brain learned something. It said, hey, good bakery. <laughs> Come back here again. Remember where this place is. Remember it's set up for context-dependent memory. 
The other thing that could happen is that my brain could sit, you know, eat the cake and my brain's like, meh, I've had better. And I get a negative prediction error where my brain says, I expect it to be at least this good and it's not as good as expected. And I learn, don't go back here. <laughs> you know, post on social media, eh, not that great a bakery or whatever. Actually, there's a third thing that could happen. So those two depend on awareness. If I pay attention, cake's good, positive prediction error. If I pay attention and it tastes bad, po- negative prediction error. And I learn. If I don't pay attention, let's say I walk into the bakery, I order some cake, and then somebody calls me and they say, oh, you listen to this, something crazy happened. And I'm mindlessly eating the cake while I'm listening on the phone. And then I finish the cake. And then I go home and my wife's like, hey, how's that bakery? And I'm like, "Uh, I don't know. It couldn't be awesome because my brain would be like, hey, get off the phone. This is really good. Pay attention. And it couldn't have been terrible because my brain wouldn't have been like, you know, spit that out. That's horrible. I would remember those things because my brain would have forced me to pay attention. It's like, hey, you know, the phone call is not as important as this cake for whatever reason. So if it's just – if it falls within an expectancy range – my brain's like, yeah, whatever. It's good. It's cake. You know, you just eat it. So if I don't pay attention, that reward value doesn't change. And that's critical because that's how habits keep getting perpetuated. If we don't pay attention, they keep, we just keep doing the same thing. As an example, I had a patient who came in that wanted to quit smoking after 40 years. First, we calculated the number of times he had reinforced this habit. Are you ready? 293,000 times. Plus or minus probably a yeah, thousand, that's, right? That's so, estimated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, a pack a day times two, you know, so 20 cigarettes a day times 365 times 40, that's a big number regardless. And it's amazing how when somebody smokes a pack a day, it's like clockwork. You know, they use it's, it's a pack a day. So there I sent him home. I said, go ahead and smoke. And for, he looks at me like, you're, you're my doctor telling me to smoke. And I say, just pay attention as you smoke. And he comes back and he's like, how did I not notice how crappy this tastes? You know? So he got a negative prediction error because he paid attention. He hadn't been paying attention for years. And so he was just repeatedly smoking habitually. Now, for anybody that doesn't smoke, my lab just published a paper on this where we did this with our – we have this eating app called Eat Right Now. And what we did was we we embedded this basically paying attention tool into the app so that we could measure how quickly people's reward value changes in their brain. We could do this you know, scientifically. You ready for this? It only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention for that reward value to drop below zero. So somebody's been habitually eating cake for 40 years or smoking for 40 years, it doesn't take 40 years to change that, which also makes sense from a survival standpoint. You can't be chased by the saber-toothed tiger like 20 times before your brain's like, dude, that's kind of dangerous, you know? <laughs> we don't get that many op- and that many chances. So we our brains are amazingly plastic and we will learn very, very quickly as long as we pay attention. That's the critical piece. We have to be aware of what's happening. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. 
Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm guessing that's where the, the curiosity aspect comes in, right? So we're getting curious about our addiction. We're getting curious about our habits and we're going to, to dive in and start examining them and being aware of them. Absolutely. We've had guests on talking about the attention economy. We now have this space race to get as much human attention distracting us to make these poor decisions as possible everywhere we look. And it's so fascinating because every time we talk to scientists, we always do go back to, well, when we were cavemen, saber-toothed tigers, when there was no abundance. Like these survival mechanisms were there because food was scarce. This reward was scarce. We are now bathing in rewards everywhere we look, whether it's food, whether it's technology, so it feels to me like we're losing this race at such a rapid pace that even if I had an ungodly amount of attention on some of these triggers, how do I beat back what's going on around me with abundance? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the nice thing here is to know that our brains and our bodies still know when something is too much, right? So- if we never plateaued in the reward value when we ate sugar, we would just keep eating sugar forever. But there's a point where we just have to stop because we are overstuffed and our body says, dude, really? Four pieces of chocolate cake? And then when we really pay attention, our body says, wow, that feels really terrible. There, it doesn't matter how much you know distraction there is. If we pay attention in that moment, our body is going to say, I know exactly how much is enough and that was too much. If we pay attention when we are overindulging on social media and we really notice like what was the result of that hour that I spent scrolling, nobody says, wow, that was great. I want to do another hour. You know, they say, wow, I wasted all that time. I actually, I teach a class in the fall at, at Brown and my, I have my students like pick a habit to work with over the semester. A lot of them pick social media <laughs> and you wouldn't believe when they, at the beginning of the semester, their social media is like a part-time job. You know, it's like really 20 hours a week or more on social media when they pay attention, they can start to see, wow, I would rather spend time with my friends as compared to texting my friends or looking at their social media, you know, posts or whatever. And they start to see not only, you know, that our bodies and our minds know what's good for us through that awareness. It doesn't matter. You know, the, the attention economy is one thing. It's like, if everything is equal, then you got to try to outcompete everybody else. Not everything is equal. Our bodies know, our minds know, and that's not going to change. We're not going to evolve that quickly to suddenly, you know, it, where sugar is going to be the the best thing for us um, from an evolutionary standpoint. So that old cave person brain, that old cave person body is still there saying, hey, if you pay attention, I can tell you exactly where to go. And the nice thing is if we do it a couple of times, we start to learn, wait a minute. Oh, wow. I'm do wow. And then we start to let go naturally. So that that's actually why I set my the unwinding anxiety book up in you know three sections. The first section is we've got to see this stuff. But nobody is not interested in seeing how their mind works, especially if they're suffering, right? If they've got too much anxiety, they're going to pay attention. If they're overeating, they're paying attention. That's a pain point, right? That's the that's why ad people, you know, they look for pain points so they can sell us stuff. The second section is what we just talked about, seeing how rewarding or unrewarding something is. But the third section is, I think, what Johnny alluded to, which is if we can see that there is something that is more rewarding, we're going to naturally be inclined in that direction. So we don't have to force our attention, right? And we don't have to try to compete with other elements to get our attention. We just have to pay attention a couple of times. You know, like I said, with this eating, uh, with our Eat Right Now program, it was 10 to 15 times. And then our brain naturally moves in that direction, which is really good news, right? If if we had to outcompete all these other things, man, they're being engineered so fast and at such, you know, with so many people behind these things, it would be impossible. And is there a time to pay attention that is crucial? So 
for example, there's a, an ice cream shop here in LA, Jenny's Ice Cream. And before the pandemic, you would go in, they'd give you a, a free taste of anything. And of course, you know, they have eight different flavors that taste amazing. So I get this one. Oh, that sounds good. This one sounds good. And all of a sudden I have three scoops of ice cream, right? I went in hoping to have one and I'm eating the ice cream and it tastes amazing. And then as the day goes on, those three scoops now are really hitting me. The next morning, I'm sluggish. I don't feel myself. So where is that attention component key? Because in the moment, I'm, I'm enjoying Jenny's. I'm so happy I'm here. And then it just like tails off until I don't want to get out of bed the next day. Yeah. So you're highlighting two really important pieces. One is that we learn through, you know, reward-based learning is based on feedback. We've got to see, so the closer that feedback can be to the behavior, the easier it is for us to be able to see, oh, there's the result, you know, positive prediction or negative prediction, or that was good, do it again, or that wasn't so good, you know, don't do that again. So if you can link back the sluggishness the next day to the ice cream the previous day, it, it gets much easier to remember, oh, wait a minute, last time I had three scoops, that wasn't so good. And so I think of this as, you know, I kind of use the analogy in the book of gears, you know, your first gear gets you moving, that's mapping out these habit loops. The second gear is like asking, what am I getting from this? That changes the reward value. And then the third gear is finding the bigger, better offer, you know, like what's better than this. So let's use the three scoops of ice cream as an example here. So with three scoops of ice cream, you know, you get eight, eight tastes and you're like, okay, I'll have those three or those five or those, you know, whatever. Let's use three. Cause that's a, that's a very common thing. Now you tell me, AJ, when you have, when you're eating a, a bite of ice cream, are you paying attention to how good that is? Or is your mind already thinking about the next lick or the next bite? Oh, I'm, I'm thinking about that second flavor that's starting to melt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So our Brian, the, the, this process is set up to help us anticipate the future because that's what drives us to do things. So from a survival standpoint, you know, we, we get the reward of something and then that dopamine fires, firing shifts from receiving the reward to anticipating it. So that dopamine starts firing that says, do it again, do it again. That's where craving comes from. So here, feedback can also help us tremendously in the moment. And by this, I think of this as like the pleasure plateau. So we can be asking ourselves, instead of anticipating that next bite or the next lick, we can ask ourselves, well, first we can just pay attention to the food that's actually in our mouth. So we can actually enjoy the ice cream that we bought because it tasted good. You know, the <laughs> irony is we're not paying, we're not enjoying it. So we can savor it. And then we can ask ourselves with the next lick or the next bite, is, is this better than, worse than, or the same as the previous one? And I think of that as we can map out that pleasure plateau. Because as we start to eat the ice cream, it's, oh, it's really good. It's still really good. It's real, still really good. And then it's, it's like, well, it's not as good as the last one. And that's our brain saying, okay, you've had enough. So I have my patients or even folks in our, in our Eat Right Now program ask themselves, how little is enough? How much can you enjoy and then stop before overindulging? Why? Because it's better when you don't overindulge. It tastes, you get all the pleasure and then you stop before you go off the cliff. And you're also getting the, the immediate reward right then that says, hey, it's better not to overindulge. And so it's even easier to learn that as compared to having to make that connection from the next morning where it's like, oh, what, what was it that I did yesterday? Was it the ice cream? Was it the soda? Was it the three pieces of pizza? <laughs> you know, it's like, then we have to try to separate those pieces out. I love all of that. The, there was a saying that I heard about five years ago that started making me looking at my daily habits and then evaluating what I was getting in return for that investment in that habit. And the saying was the answer to consciousness is more consciousness. So, so that allowed me to peer into things more. So that's the, what you were talking about in this, the second gear that I'm realizing this now. So why is this now? And the second, what that, anecdote led me to was the question, what am I getting out of each and one of these? So now that I've recognized that there was a habit that I do, what is the reward? And then understanding that I can put in my own reward. So for instance, I grew up in a family where you ate everything all the time and, and there was no food left 
on your plate and, and all these things. And as you grow older and you were living more of a world of abundance, well, eating everything became just how I ate and eating to the point of can't eat anymore was a habit that for a lot of people from that in that position will, will develop. And the reward of wearing certain clothes was a much better feeling for me than the, the feeling of being satisfied in that moment or eating to, I can't eat anymore. And so that was very easy. And then once I saw it in that manner, I started looking at all of my habits. So it was like, well, net, quitting Netflix and binging on shows was easy because I wasn't, there was nothing in return. It was only another letdown. What was, what was the gain that I had something in common with other people who watched the Lion King and now we can discuss it. That's not a reward. <laughs> That's fabulous. And maybe the first time watching Lion King is, is good because you know, the music's good. The animation's good, whatever. I think I was referring to Tiger King. <laughs> I think oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Even the first time's not good on that one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're, you've nailed it. That's what second gear or that second step is all about. What am I getting from this? Our brains know, our bodies know, and they all what that does, I think of that as it opens up the space for us to find that BBO, that bigger, better offer. And that could be as simple as not getting three scoops of ice cream. It could be as simple as not, you know, eating everything on our plate and saving leftovers for later. It could be as simple as like, you know, watching one episode of a show if it's a good show, <laughs> you know, and then not like trying to binge on the whole series just because they've left us with a cliffhanger. Well, something else that is important to me there that, that I was realizing is if you're able to forego those habits and, re and replace them with things that enhance life, that make you more happier, that allow you to, to thrive, then the feeling that you get from making those choices and how you feel on a daily basis, because now your day is filled up with things that have a, a, the, a higher return than the bad habits that you are living through. Once you reach that, there's no going back because you realize how well life can be, how exciting, how transformative, uh, how exciting to wake up every day when your your day is filled with habits that enhance every moment. Totally. That's the bigger, better offer. So, you know, if we don't eat three scoops of ice cream the next morning, we wake up feeling refreshed, you know? All of, you know, that is absolutely it. You know, if we, and we can even form good habits this way, where it's like, instead of telling ourselves that we should exercise, you know, y'all have probably heard the joke, we should all over ourselves, right? So <laughs> we, good we should exercise, we should eat healthy food. We Instead, we can just pay attention and say, oh, what's it like when I exercise? What's it like when I eat healthy food? What's it like when I have one scoop of ice cream and actually pay attention to every bite and savor it as compared to eating three scoops mindlessly and then already planning for my next trip then you know tomorrow to the ice cream store because I hadn't really been satisfied from today. Yeah, that's that's what it's all about. And it's amazing how the little things in life can be pretty rewarding when we pay attention. I think the the trick and many in our audience have suffered like like myself around social anxiety. So anxiety can often push us to bad habits and bad behaviors that are rewarding, you know, a scoop of ice cream, very rewarding, you know, a glass of alcohol to take the edge off, very rewarding. What happens when our anxiety is pushing us away from what would ultimately be rewarding by keeping us safe? And I'm thinking, you know, social anxiety, it's like, I know that hanging out with people and, and having fun and being connected to people, it, it makes me feel good. But there's also the chance that they'll reject me or not want to talk to me. So how do I balance that in the absence of that great feeling? Yeah, so that's a great question. So that's, this is where it brings together, you know, so fear is a helpful survival mechanism, right? Fear helps us learn. And planning is a helpful survival mechanism. Planning helps us, you know, helps us survive. But when you mush those two together, it's not one plus one equals three. One plus one, is, they kind of annihilate each other <laughs> where we go into the abyss of anxiety. So fear, helpful, planning, helpful, but fear of the future 
not helpful. It's actually anti-survival. Anxiety hasn't been shown to help us plan. It hasn't been shown to be anything from a survival standpoint. So here we can look and ask ourselves a simple question like, is this helping me, right? If I'm anxious, like using the social anxiety, for example, is this, you know, is this my brain that's just afraid? And is there actual danger right now? Where we can just look around and ask ourselves, bring in awareness, is there danger right now? What am I afraid of? And then it can help us start to normalize, oh, maybe there's something uh, different. So our brains don't like change. And so anytime we go into a new situation, our brain's going to say, hey, is there danger here? Right? And so we could go into panic mode and go run away, say, oh, this is you know too scary. I'm going to run away. Or we could move into our growth zone and go, oh, this is different. My brain's kind of nervous because this is new, but there's no there's no danger here. With social anxiety, we can look to see, did we learn that as a habit where we move into a new situation, that fear response that says danger just gets laid down in, as a habit and then it's negatively reinforced by avoiding situations that are anxiety provoking. There we can use these same practices to learn, oh, this is how my brain works. Let me map out these social anxiety habits. And then let me see what it's like. You know, somebody can use a mindfulness practice or something to help ground them before they go into a social situation. And then they can turn on the curiosity instead of the panic. And so they move into a new situation instead of going, oh no, this is terrible. They can go, Oh, this is my brain. It's got a it's got a habit of being anxious. Oh, what does that anxiety feel like in my body? Et cetera, et cetera. Now that might, you know, and there are a lot of different conceptions around what anxiety is. So let me just back this up with some science. So my lab asked the same question. We said, okay, can this can this curiosity thing actually work? And so we brought in people, we started with anxious physicians, actually. And did a study with them, found that we get a 57% reduction in anxiety. Then we did a randomized control trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder, right? And we said, can this actually help unwind these anxiety habit loops? Ready for this? 67% reduction in anxiety. And compared to the control group where, where there's only like a 14% reduction. And if you remember at the beginning of the show, I talked about, you know, one in five patients benefits from medication. That's called the number needed to treat. In this study, the number needed to treat was 1.6. So many, many more people benefiting from this. Uh, not that we compared this directly to medications, but if you look at that relative comparison, many more people were benefiting. And it really, and we could show the mechanism where it's helping people identify the worry and then not react to the worry. And that directly led to a reduction in anxiety. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's fascinating result when you think about, especially because let's differentiate. I think there are some in our audience who, you know, anxiety is present, but it's not to the generalized anxiety disorder situation. So, you know, how does that gradation look for those of us who aren't clinicians? Yeah, so the unless somebody doesn't have any anxiety, so we've looked at this with people to moderate to even severe anxiety. And the good news is that those habit loops are the same as gen tends to be just how often people experience it. So people with severe anxiety, they wake up in the morning, they're anxious, they start to worry about why they're anxious, they start to worry about if that anxiety is going to last all day. And guess what? It will because they're feeding that loop around that. So that's people with severe anxiety, like generalized anxiety disorder. But the same is true for people with moderate and even mild anxiety. And the good news is that people can use these same practices no matter where they are on the spectrum. It's the same types of habit loops, and they're the same practices that help them work with them. So we've talked a lot about the third year, this bigger, better offer option, and alluded to it. But Let's talk about what it actually means. It sounds like the reward is really key here, and we have to engineer the reward to be to our benefit to start to unwind the anxiety that we're feeling. Great question. The good news, again, here is our brains have already engineered it for us. And so let, let's use your ice cream example, okay? So the bigger, better offer tends to come in two flavors, okay? And one flavor is curiosity and another is kindness. And I use those two because it's really important. 
we can't just find some bigger, better offer that reinforces the same type of habit loop. So for example, if we worry and we distract ourselves by going on social media or binging on Netflix, we're just reinforcing the distraction habit loop, which keeps us in the same process. When I'm anxious, instead of worrying, I distract myself. That becomes habituated. We can't just constantly distract ourselves and it doesn't actually fix the root cause of the problem. So I'm talking about these two favors, flavors particularly because they help to dismantle it at the root. So with curiosity, we can, you know, when somebody is anxious, right? That's the trigger. If the behavior is to worry, they can then compare worrying to get getting curious about what that anxiety feels like in their body. So like instead of, you know, they're triggered by anxiety and then instead of going, oh no, I'm anxious. Why am I anxious? And they get caught up in the worry anxiety habit loop. They can go, oh, I'm anxious. What does anxiety feel like in my body? And I'll, in our unwinding anxiety app, I even give them an exercise where they can ask themselves, is it on the right side or the left side? doesn't matter what side it's on more, or if it's exactly in the middle, what that does is help them go, oh, is it on the, oh, and that, oh, awakens their curiosity. We all have this intrinsic capacity to be curious. And then we can ask ourselves, well, let me ask you two. All right. Pop quiz, hotshot. Is which one feels better, worrying or being curious? Absolutely curious. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't have to engineer that, right? Your brain already knows this. So it makes it easy for us. All we have to do is pay attention and notice how good curiosity feels as compared to worrying. The other thing curiosity does as a bigger, better offer, it feels better, but it also helps us step out of the anxiety habit loop. So we can start to notice these are physical sensations and that these physical sensations come and go on their own without us having to do something. And I want to say that again, they come and go on their own without us having to do something. And I said that twice because this is key. When something's unpleasant, our brain, as part of negative reinforcement, says do something to make this go away, right? That's what we're designed to do. Mm -hmm. Here, the being, so the curiosity helps us be with these physical sensations. And that being is the doing, which sounds crazy that the being, just being with our physical sensations is all we have to do. And what helps us be with them is being curious. And what role is the, the seeking, the pursuit of the physical sensation playing in this? Great question. So here, our feeling body is actually much stronger than our thinking brain. So if you think of a craving, we could think, oh, I shouldn't have this craving, but what does it do? It just magnifies it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if our thinking brain were really that strong, again, my patients, I'd have one visit with every patient. I'd say, just tell yourself to stop you know, worrying, for example. So the feeling body really drives our behavior. And so here we have to pay attention to the feeling body so that we can see what's driving our behavior. And we also have to pay attention to the feeling body so we can really see what's going on because the feeling of anxiety can feed thoughts of anxiety, which can then feed back and feed more feelings of anxiety. And if we can really feel into it and just notice, oh, these are physical sensations, we can actually break that cycle. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's the noticing of the sensation allows you to take that step away from what would be your natural reaction, which would be take some action, do something to combat it. Yes, absolutely. And you know, this reminds me of in physics, they had what was called the observer effect when they were trying to measure. Yeah. They're trying to measure the mass of an, of an electron. They would hit it with photons and then they learned, oh crap, we're changing the mass by hitting it with photons. <laughs> you know, So we have to take that into account. That's why it's called the observer effect. By observing, you're affecting the result. Psychologically, this it works the same way. If we are identified with a thought or a feeling of anxiety, we, we're going to get caught up in it. But by observing, oh, that's what anxiety feels like. That observing changes our relationship to it. So we're basically changing the mass, so to speak. We're changing the weight of the anxiety because we're realizing, oh, that's not me. That's just a feeling. Obviously, this requires a, us 
taking into consideration and bringing awareness to all of these triggers and behavior. So for those in the audience now who've identified, oh, I have some habits that are causing me anxiety, how do we start to actually map this in a practical way in our own lives? Yeah, it's really simple. And it's amazing how, <laughs> how many habits we can map out from a single day. You know, again, we can map them all out. We can, you know, non-judgmental. It doesn't matter what it is. We can just map it out so we can get used to the process. And in fact, we, I, so I started doing this with all my patients. Like they'd come in an intake and they'd start telling me a history and I would start writing down what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result. And then I would review it with them. You know, one, they could see that I was actually paying attention and not just doodling, <laughs> <You know>, the, <laughs> not the, uh, the, the, the psychiatrist in the movie that's sitting there drawing pictures behind the you know, patient on the couch. I'm actually paying attention and I can show them and I can say, Hey, is, am I getting this right? So we can make sure we connect and I'm hearing them correctly. And then they can take that home and, and start mapping that out themselves. So in fact, I even created a habit mapper. I think it's just mapmyhabit.com. We just put up a free habit mapper that anybody can download and just print it out and start mapping their habits. That's how simple it is. Somebody could write it out on a piece of paper. What's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? They could download this habit map where it gives them a worksheet to do the same thing in a bunch of sheets because you can start to see all the habits that we're stuck in. But that's it. We can even map it out just mentally if somebody just prefers to do it on the fly. Oh, and typically I'll have somebody start with the behavior because sometimes we can't notice what the trigger was. So, you know, let's say we're in the middle of, of eating or, or ordering that third scoop of ice cream, right? So we can start with that behavior, map it back to what was the trigger? Well, the trigger was that I tried eight flavors and I just couldn't decide. So I needed to get at least three of them. And then we can map it forward to the, what's the result of this, you know, and if it's the first time we do something, we might just have to do it and pay attention and see how, how it went. If we've done it before, we could, you know, if we're in the process of ordering the ice cream, we can think back, Ooh, how good was that last time? And maybe cut it down to two or even one scoop and then, you know, see how that goes. So, you know, the mapping piece, pretty straightforward. The second step around, you know, seeing what the reward value is, it can be simplified to, to asking the simple question or some version of this question, what am I getting from this, right? We can do that in the moment. Oh, sorry. We can do that in the moment or we can even do it retrospectively. Like you were saying, you know, the the morning after I eat the three scoops, what was that like? We can even think back to what it was like or or what we're getting from it now. Well, this all makes sense with the the data that we're seeing of of anxiety and depression going through the roof once smartphones were prevalent in everyone's hands because it's infinite distraction. So there's no thought about what you're doing and how you're feeling and or a moment where you're being reflective and thinking about your decisions. With endless distraction, you're just going from one bad habit into the next and reinforcing those. Yeah, totally. I think it was Cornell West who said these these are our weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what exactly does worrying do to our mind? Because it, we've brought it up a lot here, and and many in our audience are worried about the future. We're in a pandemic. You know, worry is is present right now. So, what exactly is going on when we're worrying, and, and how does that impact our behaviors? So there's a there's a brain network called the default mode network. And well, I guess this is good news and bad news, but the good <laughs> news is they figured out what that network does <laughs> and they named it the default mode network because it's what we default to when we're not doing anything in particular. And this network gets activated by worrying. It also gets activated when we are craving things ranging from everything from cigarettes to, to, <laughs> to chocolate, to even getting a bunch of likes on Instagram, right? So we know that our brain's getting activated and this network, this self-referential, I think of it as the me network, is getting activated when we're worrying. And the not so good news is just as one example, when this network is activated, uh, it's, so activity in this network has been, has been correlated with the development of Alzheimer's disease, for example. So the more active it is, the more problems we have down the road uh, with regard to cognitive function. In the near term, 
the more active it is, the harder it is to do cognitive tasks in some, you know, some studies have shown that. So basically I think of it as when this network is activated, we're getting in our own way, which is, which is kind of ironic because, you know, you'd think that we'd be able to help ourselves, but in fact, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know what would be a good analogy. A conductor is good at conducting an orchestra and helps the orchestra play. This is kind of like the business manager of the orchestra coming in and be like, Hey guys, no, 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 play it this way. And, and then, you know, everybody's looking at the dude, like, what, what are you talking about? You have no idea. So we actually think that by, you know, getting caught up in these worry habit loops, we're helping ourselves out. But in fact, we are not in any, any way, shape or form. I think it's a, the same reaction we have upon drowning or that we're, we're losing our place swimming. And so the, what we want to do is to panic in that situation because we think that's going to help ourselves because we'll be flailing ourselves out of it. But in, in actuality, it only speeds up the process of us going under. <laughs> you know, that's a great example and absolutely true. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, you, you quoted that, that this default network is active quite frequently throughout the day for, for all of us. It is. We tend just look, there was one study that showed that just mind wandering, which activates the default mode network tends to happen about 47% of waking life. And that's just mind wandering. So imagine add that to craving, to worrying, to ruminating. (laughs) This is a pretty active network. So it it strikes that we're spending the bulk of our time either focusing on the past or the future and not enough time in the present. The more focus we can put on the present, the more we can beat back those cravings, the more we can replace rewards with better rewards for us and modulate how these habits are creating and manifesting anxiety in our life. Yeah, you you summed it up really nicely. And there was even a study showing that being present actually feels better than being lost in the future or the past, even if that's a pleasant, you know, on average, even if we're thinking about pleasant things, you know, I think the conclusion of this study was a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And you're, you're touching on it, which is being present, even being present with anxiety, right? Because we can start to step out of those habit loops in those moments. Being present actually is, you know, what, what's the saying? You must be present to win. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Here we are. If you want to win in terms of like living a, a good, fulfilling life, it's about being present. I think it also lends itself to understanding that if you don't have your mind focused on something that you are working towards, th- then your mind is going to find its own thing to focus itself on. And it's going to be in a and that those defaults in a destructive manner. Then all of a sudden you start ripping apart relationships, yourself. That energy goes into to bad forms rather than good forms. That and that we are in control of that and must be directing it towards the things that we we need it to. Yeah, absolutely. And if we can just start to notice our minds getting stuck in those ruts and asking, what am I getting from this? That already helps us start to, you know, pull that needle out of that well-grooved, you know, vinyl of the record and onto a new song. And you touched on this earlier around curiosity and kindness. So what is the role and impact that kindness is playing and how do we bring that into the fold? Yeah, there one song that our brains play over and over and over is the judgment song. You know, and we're really good, you know, on the top 10 of the judgment, you know, billboards is uh, self-judgment. We're really good at judging ourselves. And we can, you know, this comes in multiple flavors. Uh, You know, we can either say, oh, I'm terrible. You know, I can't believe I did that. I'm a bad person. And it can also come as, oh, I did a good job there. I did, you know, wow, I'm a good person. Both of those. (laughs) can trip us up because when we feel bad about ourselves, of course, that can reinforce that habit. And when we feel good, we are, you know, we're, we get in the habit of trying to keep that good feeling going. And so the extreme version of that is narcissism where, you know, narcissists, they're, they're, they're just starving for attention all the time. It must be exhausting. And I can't imagine Anybody that's like, hey, I love hanging out with narcissists. It's just so fun to feed their egos and listen to them talk about themselves. 
We lived in Los Angeles. You know, we, yeah, we yeah just say it. No, no comment. <laughs> I'll abstain from comment on that one. <laughs> so with all of the, the science, the studies to back it up, and the practical work that you've done in, in the clinic, how have you brought it into your own personal life? You know, I have to say my immediate reaction to that is I'm so glad I ordered that flavor of curiosity because it is delicious. <laughs> and I say that in the sense that the more I'm curious, the more it's just so helpful in every aspect of my own life. So in my lab, for example, when we were doing brain imaging studies, looking at experienced meditators, the first time we did that, we expected to see increased brain activity somewhere and we didn't find a single thing. And if I just, if I wasn't curious, and I didn't start looking to ask, well, what's deactivated instead of what's activated, I would have totally missed a huge finding. So that curiosity helped me get out of my own way, whether it's scientifically, it helps me get out of my own way when in my relationship with my wife. And so, you know, she's upset about something instead of, you know, trying to fix her or do something, I can get curious. Oh, What's upsetting you? And, you know, it's really helpful. I mean, this might sound crazy, but it's really helpful to like listen to people and try to get their perspective. <laughs> you know, I know it sounds it sounds absurd to say that, but some often we're so blinded by our own unpleasantness uh, that comes with like somebody else being anxious. We're just jump in and try to do something or or block it out or whatever. So in my own life, you know, curiosity has been so helpful in, in all different realms. And I have to say kindness <laughs> also a no brainer compared to being mean, you know, like when I'm angry or, or mean to somebody and I really pay attention to the results of that as compared to being kind, it's a no brainer. You know, it just feels so much better to be kind and to, to feel the kindness of others as well. And so in my everyday life, it, it's kind of like these are these are feeding forward in a way that is helping me get out of my own way and to live a richer life and hopefully to be more, I don't know if this sounds too cheesy, but to be more of service because that also feels good. You know, like I'm so lucky that I have a job where it's as a clinician, it's to help people. And then also as a scientist, it's to figure out how better to help people and then bring those two together. And of course, that doesn't make space for the judgment that causes such harm, whether it's towards others in relationships or towards ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we love asking every guest what their X factor is, what it is that makes you unique and extraordinary. I, I think you basically answered it with curiosity, but what do you think your X factor is, Judd? Well, I don't know how unique it is, but I'd have to say my, my superpower definitely is curiosity. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd love our audience to learn more about the apps that you have to help them combat their cravings and anxiety. So where can our audience find more about these apps and the work that you do? I have a totally self-referential named uh, website, drjud.com. <laughs> so <laughs> it's <laughs> uh, drjud.com. People can go there and got a bunch of free resources as well as information about the apps, about my books, et cetera. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Johnny, what I really appreciated about Dr. Brewer's book is that he takes a very practical approach to unwinding anxiety. I know we talk a lot about anxiety and how it holds us back on the show, but it takes a lot of work to actually start to understand how your mind works understand the reward habit loop and the steps you need to take to finally take control of your life. AJ, I'm starting to recognize a pattern here and I'm sure you're seeing it as well. Everything else in our life is helping us speed things up and all the science is telling us to slow things down. Exactly. And it was great to have Dr. Buran to share exactly that. We had a couple shout outs this week. We're checking out our Apple Podcast Reviews. We got a five-star review from Moving to a New City Podcast. This was one of my favorite Toolbox episodes, Johnny. They write, inspirational all around with a wealth of information, left me feeling enlightened and empowered, and gave me a fresh and exciting perspective on the dynamics of communities and how to create and be a part of a flourishing one. 
Thank you for that awesome review. And I know if you haven't checked out that Toolbox episode, even if you're not new to a city, there's a wealth of great tips and strategies in there to really engage and grow your own network. And here's another five-star review from Mr. Agniru, who writes, Great information and amazing guests. I listen to the Artichon podcast nonstop while running my solo entrepreneur branding digital marketing graphic design company. Wow. I want to thank AJ and Johnny for sharing so much personal information that allows me to be my best. Thank you, everyone, for our five-star reviews. And if you haven't had a chance yet, could you do us a huge favor? Head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review this show. It helps us bring on great guests and, of course, people like you find the show. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Go out there and have an epic week.